I invite you again to turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter number 1. 1 Peter, chapter number 1. Last night, we saw the picture of holiness and the pursuit thereof, and I trust that we were able to delineate it from both the fatal flaws of a pharisaical legalism that only focuses on the externals and also a practical antinomianism that makes no application to our manner of life. And we saw how this Personal, purposed holiness is cultivated in us as we employ our minds to serve our hope and rest in divine grace. Isn't that a beautiful phrase there in verse 13 when Peter tells us that we are to rest our hope fully in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul said, It is true that what you think in your mind will never get you into the kingdom of God until it reaches your heart. But we have been created by God in such a way that the pathway to the heart is through the mind. But perhaps you hear all of that. You hear that sermon about resting and thinking, having hope. And you think, well, that sounds all fine and well, but how do I do it? I mentioned last night, resting is hard work. Because naturally, as a result of the fall, we're programmed with this vein of self-righteousness that tells us we've got to do, do, do. And the biblical gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which says, you must rest, is hard work. By the way, that's a command. Resting, you're commanded to rest. (laughs) But even as a Christian, you still struggle with your sins. You still have a sense of your own weaknesses. You even still struggle with that desire and that, that stinking way of thinking that tells you, well, surely there must be something that you have to do to earn the favor of God. There must be some good work that you must perform so that he really loves you. And then, then you'll achieve holiness. Well, my goal tonight is to illustrate something that I think really is the crux of the whole issue. And that is the vital connection Between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian. It's a connection that I I think is far too infrequently made in preaching and in gospel ministry. There is, in many circles, a great emphasis on the work of Christ. And there, as well there should be, a, a preaching of Him and all that He's done and how He's paid it all and how He's finished it and how He said on the cross, I didn't start it, I finished it. Yes and amen. And then there's a lot of sermons at a lot of conferences that are all uh, ten steps to change your practical way of life uh, and be a better Christian. And 
There are, there is some good in that, but if you fail to connect those two domains, you will either be a legalist or an antinomian. So we got to make that connection. The connection between what Christ has done and what now you must do. I want to show you that the power of holiness, and by that I don't mean the power that holiness has, but the power that is required to produce holiness, the power of holiness is fundamentally rooted not in your might as a Christian, but in the finished work of your Christ. So let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read the whole of it. We got through verse 13 last night. I'll be looking at verses 18 through 21 tonight, but I'm going to read the whole of our text again. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. These are the words of God. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We see this vital connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian in this little phrase at the beginning of verse 18, knowing that. Knowing that. This adverbial participle is the bridge that takes us from the imperatives of verses 13 through 17 to the power to obey them. Remember I told you that 1 Peter 1 is somewhat of an imperative sandwich. Because we have these imperatives in verses 13 through 17 that are wedged in between two sets of indicatives. And the little words, therefore, in verse 13, and the words, knowing that, in verse 18, provide us with the logical progression of the text. You can, you can see how Peter is forming this argument. The context is so important. Verse 13 introduces the imperatives that are based on the indicatives of verses 3 through 12. But now in verse 18, we find additional indicatives that are essential for our ability to obey the preceding imperatives. There's a lesson there, by the way. And the lesson is this. Uh, God does not give you arbitrary, pointless, nonsensical commands. But he precedes his commands with 
indicatives that ground and base those commands. And the, the beauty of that is that God doesn't owe us that. He doesn't owe us that. He's God. He doesn't owe us, I am the Lord your God which hath brought you out of the land of Egypt. He doesn't owe us that. He has every right to just give the commands. But he doesn't do that. He grounds his commands and he begins his commands and he introduces his commands with promises. With indicative statements. And many applications should be made that way. Actually, I, I, I was... Uh, Dealing with this at my church recently, uh, in a, just a Sunday sermon, as we were looking there in 1 Corinthians 10 at the end of, at the, end of the chapter there. And we made the statement that you know, most of the time when, when, when your child comes to you and you've told them what to do and they ask why, what you want to say is, because I said so. And there are instances in which such a reply might be appropriate, especially if you detect an attitude of rebellion that's formulating the question. They do need to know that dad and mom have said this, therefore I must do it. They need to know that. But if that's all you're saying, you're not doing a good job parenting because you're provoking them to wrath. You're not, you're not giving any kind of clear, loving Exhortation to obey and explaining how it's, it's a blessing for you to obey. Well, God does not provoke his children to wrath either. So before he gives these commands, he, he tells us, you've been born again. You have an incorruptible inheritance. You, you're kept by the power of God. You, you have joy inexpressible and full of glory. He tells us these things. Then he gives us the imperatives. But then after that, after the imperatives, he gives us more indicatives. As you're obeying, remember these promises. Here's how you must understand the beginning of verse 18. This is what Peter is saying by the inspiration of God. You will only be able to obey the command to pursue holiness. And really, if you sum up those imperatives in verses 13 through 17, that's what they're commanding you to do. Resting your hope, fully in grace. Being holy as God is holy. It's a pursuit of holiness. You're only going to obey the imperative to be holy if you do it with the knowledge found in verses 18 through 21. And this knowledge is not just a factual assessment, a cognitive possession of information. This knowledge is the precious truth of what God has done for his people in Christ. And it must be the reality of your life and soul before you can begin a practical pursuit of holiness. It's where you must begin. The truth which Peter will now proclaim is this. The power of your holiness is not found in the strength of your flesh, nor in any amount of willpower that you can muster. The power of your holiness was secured by the death of Christ because he lived, he died, and he rose again to make you holy. Amen. And the only people who pursue practical holiness are those who are already positionally holy in Jesus Christ. Do you know what the Christian life is all about, if you had to sum it up, well, here's what you need to do to live the Christian life. You need to be, in reality, what you already are in Jesus Christ. He called you to be saints. 
He says you're holy. You're justified. You're righteous ones. Now be that. Be what you are in Christ. In actuality. In the way you live your life. I want you to stop and think about that for a second. This is really the thesis of the entire message. And it's a truth that's just far too often neglected. And it's the neglect of this truth that causes such a deficiency in the practical holiness of good Orthodox evangelicals. What I've just said to you is this, that the sinless life of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ were not to merely secure the forgiveness of your sins. But they were also and equally intended to secure the holiness of your living. You know, the the fundamentalist movement and the doctrine of decisional regeneration, by and large, has produced a category that they call uh, the carnal Christian. You know what I'm talking about? It's the one who makes a decision for Christ and receives him or chooses him as Savior, but has not yet made him Lord. And so they go on living like hell, but they will claim to be a Christian, and their churches will recognize them as Christians, because one day, 15 years ago, at summer camp, they made a decision for Christ. Well, obviously, we reject that. But my fear is that we've invented our own category. I, I've, I, this is the first time I've, I've said this from the pulpit. I've said this in conversations because I haven't found a, a good name for it. But I found a name for it. We've invented the category that I've termed the carnal Calvinist. It's the guy at church that loves to talk about theology... He subscribes to Table Talk magazine. He watches Steve Lawson and R.C. Sproul and Vody Bauckham on YouTube day and night. He can go on and on about the five points. He can beautifully articulate justification by faith. But he's a closet alcoholic who's cruel to his wife, who's mean to his kids, and has a secret addiction to internet pornography that he thinks nobody knows about. All the while, he soothes his guilty conscience because he has an intellectual knowledge of doctrine and theology, the carnal Calvinist. And our churches will say, oh yes, brother so-and-so, or perhaps sister so-and-so, oh yes, they're a Christian because they can articulate all this beautiful theology. I heard a a prominent pastor say recently, he said, we've got all these young men in our church. They love to sit around and they love to read these big books by John Piper and John MacArthur. But then I hear that they're unwilling to leave 15 minutes early for church to pick up an elderly member. And I wonder if they're converted. Because what did Jesus say? The world will know you're my disciples by your pristine reformed theology. That's what he said. The world will know you're my my disciples if you have love one for another. 
In other words, the chief mark of a Christian is not the doctrine they articulate with their mouth. It's the way they live their life. Listen to me very carefully. If all you have is the doctrine of justification by faith, then you don't have justification by faith. Because the Bible is clear. The grace that justifies cannot be so radically separated from the grace that sanctifies. Justification by faith is a means to something greater. We love justification by faith. We died for justification by faith. Our ancestors shed their blood for justification by faith. And if they saw all these carnal Calvinists that were abusing justification by faith to justify their own carnal lives, they'd roll over in their graves. why the theme of this conference is so important. Justification by faith is a means to something greater. A life of sanctification and holiness and a pursuit of God. If you are void of this holiness, as it's been said in these messages, this whole conference, If you're void of this holiness, you have no reason to think that you belong to Christ. Because without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. So last night, we looked at this picture of holiness and we saw what you must do. Girding up the loins of your mind. Being sober. Resting your hope. Fully in grace. Being holy in all your conduct, conducting yourself in fear. And now as we come to verse 18, we begin to look at what he has done. What he has done. And we see that the power of your holiness and your ability to do all of those things lies in what Christ has already done for you. And here's the key to understanding this passage. In verse 16, the context is sanctification. The context of verse 13. And in verse 18, the context doesn't change. Can I confess something to you? I never saw that until I began preparing for these messages. I'm being really honest with you. I've read these verses a hundred times. I've preached these verses. Verse 18 through 21, I've preached them. And if you're like me, maybe I'm not alone here, you come to them and you read them and you read, you are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you think, that's justification. Well, yes, justification is there. But if that's all you see, you're missing the whole point of the argument that Peter is making in this chapter. Be holy for I am holy. What's that? That's your practical Christian life. That's your pursuit of holiness. And then Peter goes on to say, you should do that because you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. The vital connection. The vital connection between what Christ has done and your practical personal sanctification. So let's consider this text in the context 
of Christ's work, not only to pardon us, but also to purify us. First thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see in verses 18 and 19, the redeeming blood of Christ. The redeeming blood of Christ. He says, you are not redeemed with corruptible things. The word that Peter used for redeemed was very common in his day. It refers to liberation from an oppressive condition. The buying of a slave's freedom, the deliverance of those in bondage is a very common word. It's not as common to us in our context because we don't have slavery in our society the way that Peter did. Thank God for that. But in Peter's day, it would have been a very common word. For Peter's audience, who are dispersed Jews, it would have been even more common. Because this this word would have no doubt recalled memories of the Exodus. The Exodus was the redemptive event in the Old Testament. The the greatest cardinal event in in the, the history of the people of God is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number two on that list is the Exodus. Okay? And so Peter's using very familiar Language, But here's the difference. He's he's going from shadow to substance. He says, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. You go down to the slave market. You go to buy a slave. You say, here's five drachmas of gold or here's some silver. Let me purchase that individual. But Peter says that the slave is redeemed with corruptible things that perish. By the way, you know that all the money in the world is going to perish, right? But this redemption, it's not a physical redemption from literal chains. Your redemption's not like that, Peter says. Your redemption is spiritual. It's a spiritual redemption. Later in the epistle, he will actually... Uh, talk directly to slaves, those who are physically enslaved, and say that even though you might be a slave in this life, you're redeemed, you're free in Christ. So then what is the price of our redemption, Peter? Not with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. The price of your redemption was infinitely more valuable than all of the silver and gold that this world could ever contain. The price of your redemption was nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your Lord. And this is the only thing that could ever wash away the dark stains of sin. This is the only thing that could satisfy the wrath of God. This is the only thing that could take a black, depraved heart and make it alive and white as snow. It's the only payment that God would accept. You realize that the price was paid to the Father. It's the only thing he'll accept. That's why, sinner, it's so foolish of you to think that you can take your filthy works that the Bible says are are just filthy rags, your righteousnesses are filthy rags, and go up to God and say, God, I've got something to offer you for my redemption. When he's already accepted The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For this reason, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, says that his blood is precious. It's a beautiful word. We use that word in our vernacular when we hold a, when we hold a little baby. We hold something that's so innocent and undefiled and unstained and a sense in which there's just a perfection there. We say, oh, how precious. We don't often think of a prisoner that's being executed by the state as precious. Could you imagine the day there? They're standing at Mount Calvary and they're looking up at this Jewish carpenter that's being crucified on a cross, this grotesque sight. And could you imagine John the Apostle saying, how precious. Well, to the natural man, it's not precious at all. It's grotesque. But to us, we've been given eyes to see by the Spirit of God. We look to our Savior hanging on a cross with the eyes of faith and we say, how precious. How precious. Precious metals, gold and silver, sparkling diamonds, rubies and emeralds, they're but cheap toys compared to the precious blood of Christ. The whole world and all things deemed precious by men are nothing next to the excellency and exceeding value of the blood of the Son of God. It's precious blood. His blood is not precious because it is scarce. For his blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed saints of God be saved to sin no more. His blood is not precious because it is limited in its efficacy. For Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. His blood is precious because it can accomplish what nothing else can accomplish. His blood is precious because of its divine might. His blood is precious because of the effects of it. His blood is precious because it and it alone can save. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Peter describes it as a lamb. Without blemish and without spot. This reference in the ears of Peter's audience was a loud echo back to the Passover lamb of the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the Levitical system was bloody business. But that blood was not precious. Not like this blood. That lamb that was slain and its blood was painted on the doorposts. And it was by virtue of that blood that God passed over the Israelites and spared them. Christ's blood is precious because it is only by virtue of his blood applied to your heart that God passes over you. All right, so everything I've said thus far is true. But if we stopped here, we would fall short of the real intent of the passage. Peter doesn't stop there. 
We were redeemed and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. But the question is, redeemed from what? Merely from hell? Merely from the penalty of our sins? Merely from eternal condemnation? Well, we don't have to sit and wonder. He tells us. It's a wonderful thing about the Bible. A lot of times you don't have to sit around and wonder what it means. It tells you what it means. You were redeemed from your aimless conduct. That's what I never saw before I started preparing for these messages. I got to where I just took you and then I stopped there. And there's a sense in which you can stop there and say amen and praise the Lord and close your Bible and you've done justice to the text. But, but what did Peter just say? The precious blood of Christ redeemed you from aimless conduct. Vain living. The blood of Christ was not only shed to redeem your eternity. It was shed to redeem your present. Not just to liberate you from future judgment, but to liberate you from a pointless present. Not just to save you from condemnation, but to save you from an empty way of life. Now there's two things here that we learn about the precious blood of Christ. And these two lessons are absolutely vital for your pursuit of holiness. You must learn them. Number one, first lesson here. The blood that washes your sins away in justification is the same blood that purges your sin in sanctification. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, what if I told you that the word for sanctify there in Hebrews 13, 12 is the same word for holy in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16? Ayadzo. So in Hebrews 13, we have an indicative that tells us that Jesus shed his blood to make his people ayadzo. And in 1 Peter 1, we have an imperative that commands us to be ayadzo. You see where I'm going with this? How are we to obey this command? Imagine if your father came to you one day and he said, that's it, you've been... Freeloading long enough, from here on out, if you want to stay living in my house, you must pay me a thousand dollars. And oh, by the way, here's a thousand dollars. Well, would you not then have the price in your account to present in order to be accepted into your father's home? The beauty of the gospel is that what God demands, he supplies. Therefore, when you see besetting sin in your life, you don't pursue holiness by puffing up your chest and stirring up your willpower and employing your self-determination to overcome it on your own. When your father says, oh, by the way, here's $1,000, you don't say, no thanks, I'll go get a job. 
You pursue holiness by hitting your knees and saying, Father, the same blood that your son Jesus shed to justify me, I stand in need of in this very moment to cleanse me in sanctification. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that enables you to pursue holiness. It's the first lesson you need to learn. You're commanded to be ayadzo. But Jesus died to make you ayadzo, holy. Secondly, the efficacy of Christ's blood in the forgiveness of sin is just as efficient in the cleansing of sin. According to our text, when Christ died, he shed his blood not only to purchase our eternal salvation in heaven, but also to purchase our deliverance from an aimless way of living. My question to you is, did he fail in his ransom? Was he shortchanged at Calvary? Brothers and sisters, there was equity at the cross. He got what he paid for. When we speak of the blood of Christ to justify us, we have no trouble speaking with undeniable, absolute certainty. We're good Calvinists here, right? We, we love to speak of the blood of Christ in justification with absolute certainty. He paid it all. And if he shed his blood for you, you will never, ever, never, ever fall into condemnation. You are justified. And I say amen to that. And I hope you do too. But what I'm adjuring you to do in this message is not to stop there. Why is it that we don't talk about the power of Christ's blood to sanctify with the same dogmatic confidence we use when we talk about the power of his blood to justify You have no trouble affirming and believing and resting your eternity in the power of Christ's blood to save you from condemnation. Why is it that you struggle to believe in the power of his blood to save you from the struggle of besetting sins? Why don't you say, Jesus paid it all, and if he shed his blood for you, then you will pursue purposed, personal holiness that will manifest in the way you live your life. Because that kind of confidence makes us uncomfortable when we consider the vast multitudes who profess to be saved by the blood of Christ but have no marks of practical sanctification in their life. We don't like to speak with that kind of confidence because it makes us really queasy when we remember our carnal Calvinist buddy. We create this category that says, well, he's got his theology right, so he must be a Christian. I just don't know what's going on with him. And I'm pleading with you. Don't make that category. The Bible doesn't know of that category. When we do make that category, we dishonor the precious blood of Christ. Because what we're saying is this. Christ's blood has the efficacy to save us from the penalty of sin, but it does not have the efficacy to save us from the power of sin. That's what we're saying. 
Christ's blood does not fail. He did not shed his blood in vain when he died to purchase your holiness any more than he did when he died to purchase your justification. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? You want to win victory over the evil in your life and your heart? There's power in the blood. Listen, there is not a single sin in your life that cannot be overcome by the blood of Christ. If you understood what I said, you should have jumped up and run a lap. He shed his blood for your gossiping tongue. He shed his blood for that anger in your heart. He shed his blood for your complaining. He shed his blood for your discontentment. He shed his blood for your lust. He shed his blood for your porn habit. You say, brother, are you preaching sinless perfection? No, I'm preaching hope. Hope. You don't have to keep sinning anymore. He shed his blood for you. He's freed you. You were redeemed from your conduct, not just your eternal condemnation, from your conduct. Now, I want to be clear, okay? The the liberation of justification is an immediate release in a way that sanctification is not. I understand that. But it's there. The power is there. Don't make peace with the sin in your life that God shed his blood to deliver you from. Quit saying, well, preacher, I get it. I know it's wrong, but that's just the way I am. The whole point of the gospel is to change the way you are. The redeeming blood of Christ redeems you from aimless, unholy conduct and employs you in a pursuit of practical Holiness. Well, there's a few more things I want you to see. I'll go through them quickly. Secondly, I want you to see the resolving ordination of Christ. The resolving ordination of Christ. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 20. He says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And we've got to read this verse in light of what we've seen thus far. To what was Christ foreordained? To be the Savior that would die to purchase our holiness. What Peter is doing here is he's strengthening the argument and he's deepening our trust in Christ. We cannot confidently trust Christ unless we believe that he is, always has been, and always will be the only source of salvation from sins past, present, and future. Calvin says, herein shines forth more fully the unspeakable goodness of God, that he anticipated our disease by the remedy of his grace and provided a restoration to life before the first man had fallen into death. Some of you are struggling with sin. You're fighting sin in your life. And you're thinking, where's the the remedy? Where's the next great... Christian help book that's going to help me. Where's the next great uh, 
discipline that I need to include in my routine so that I can overcome it. Brothers and sisters, the remedy is 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary and the blood that was shed to cleanse you from your aimless conduct. Before our fall into unholiness ever occurred, our redemption to holiness was already secure. Ephesians 2.10. We like verses 8 and 9. Verse 10 is the one that we're not so sure about. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Foreordained. It's the same word in 1 Peter. He foreordained our good works. Our brothers, in the Q&A earlier today, it's a little uncomfortable if you're not used to that truth. Good works are necessary for your salvation. They don't earn you your salvation. They don't merit the favor of God. But when God justifies you, there will be some good works. Both the intent and the extent of his death was settled upon in the eternal counsel of God. This truth tells us that in the pursuit of our holiness, it was God who ultimately took the initiative. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. We pursue holiness because he pursued us. And his pursuit began in the halls of eternity when Christ was ordained as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When the father sent his son into the world to redeem a bride. He also gave him the commission. And before you bring her home... Pretty her up, clean her off, anoint her with fine raiment, get her the best perfume, prepare her in beauty and in splendor. Because we're preparing a glorious supper. And when you bring her back, we don't want her as the filthy wretch that you found her. We want her. Be without spot and without blemish. And so Ephesians 5 tells us that he loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify her. He saw the mess that you would make of your life before you were ever born to live it. He knew that you would never seek after him, so he sought you. In the person of Jesus Christ, he condescended, he pulled out the wretched filth that was our life. And he began the work of purifying us and cleansing us and making us holy all according to his eternal plan. Bless his name. His saving work was decreed before the foundation of the world along with our good works that we walk in them as a result of his blood shed for us. But Peter continues. He begins to explain how it is that the blood of Christ ordained before the foundation of the world and shed 2,000 years ago on the cross, reaches our lives in a personal and intimate way. I heard John MacArthur say something about preaching one time that, that, that was such a great help to me, but it also made my life a lot harder. He said, the way that you prepare a good sermon is you ask questions about the text. And if you have a point that sounds really good, keep asking questions about it and just keep writing until all the questions are answered. 
Well, one of the questions that I'm having is I'm looking at this. I'm thinking to myself, okay, Peter, you're telling me that the precious blood of Christ shed 2,000 years ago. That's, that's the power to pursuing my holiness. What does that have to do with me? How does the blood of Christ shed 2,000 years ago reach me? Uh, we're, not, we're not as those who say that we should be going to Jerusalem and looking for some wood chip that might have possibly been part of the cross. And you know, It's not a physical reception, right? So here's what Peter says. Here's the answer to that question. Yes, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you. The last times are a reference to the period between the first and second coming of Christ. In this period, as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, how is it that he's personally revealed to your heart? How are the benefits of his shed blood applied to you? There is something supernatural that goes on when God's people come together and the word of God is opened. And a man of God stands and proclaims the truths and the glories of Christ as they are given in the scriptures. Do you know what's happening right now? Christ is manifesting himself to you. He's revealing himself to you. And he's saying to you, come and take me. Come and get in the fountain of my shed blood. That's what he's saying to you right now. But it's also right to speak of the manifestation within the manifestation. For there are a multitude of those who, though they attended the preaching of the gospel, they never partook of the substance of these things with the heart of faith. So, putting the skin on the bones for your pursuit of holiness, that gift of faith that God gives you when you see Christ manifested and you come and receive him time and time again, more of him, more of him. More of him. I want more of him. How many of you have prayed that? I want more of you. Less of me. More of you. When you consider the question of how it is that the redeeming blood of Christ shed 2,000 years ago is applied specifically and salvifically to your heart in this day, you must underscore the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in the covenant of redemption who came into the world, proceeded from the Father and from the Son, and takes the benefits of Christ's death. What are those benefits? Redemption from eternal condemnation and from aimless conduct. And he takes those benefits and applies them to your heart. Isn't that beautiful? Just as the Israelites of the Old Testament spread the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts, so too does the Holy Spirit spread the blood of Christ upon the hearts of His people. And the blood that He applies not only causes the wrath of God to pass by you, it also brings to you the power to be a holy people unto the Lord your God. This is the crux of Peter's argument. The same Christ who died to save you also from the penalty and the power of your sin. The same blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins was also shed for the conquering of those sins. 
The same Holy Spirit that comes to you with justifying grace remains with you and in you with sanctifying grace. It is the grace of God in the gospel that not only frees you from guilt, shame, and condemnation into the life in the life to come, it is the same grace that makes you holy in the life that you now live. And we know this to be true and we can believe this because fourthly we see in verse 21 the resurrecting glory of Christ. Who through him, that's who, that's God. Who through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When the Holy Spirit comes To apply the blood of Christ to your heart, he does so by granting to you the gifts of faith and repentance. There's no magic words for you to say, no special prayer for you to repeat, no hoop for you to jump through. You receive Christ and the totality of his work for you through the gift of faith. So the exhortation is trust him. Trust his death. Trust his blood. And relinquish all trust in anything else. You say, brother, how can I trust him with such confidence? Because the one who shed his blood and died rose from the dead. And just as sure as God raised Jesus from the dead, so too does he raise you from the dead. You say, yes, I know the doctrine of the... No, no. He's already... Raised you from the dead. And you walk in newness of life. You can pursue holiness. Now, if you're still in the grave, you're not pursuing nothing. If you're still dead in trespasses and sins, you're not pursuing nothing. But you're not in the grave anymore. You've been raised with Christ. And we rest our hope. Fully in this grace. Knowing that just as he raised Jesus from the dead. He raised us. He will not leave us in our sins. He will not abandon us in unholiness. God loves you too much. To allow you to remain in the sins that Jesus died to save you from. Well perhaps you're here and you've come to the realization. That your pursuit of holiness has never begun. And it's never begun because you've never received the grace of God in Christ. You've realized, perhaps, even at this Christian event, that you are lost and yet in your sins. Let me say to you, first, that you will never pursue holiness until you come to the Savior. Before holiness can be worked out in your life Christ must first be received in your heart. So come to him. Come to the one who shed his precious blood. He will save you. And he will overwhelm you with sweet, pardoning grace. But his grace won't stop there. The grace that justified you will begin to sanctify you. And God will mold you and fashion you into the image of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that, Christian. Or you'll lose your mind. 
Because there are some days I look in the mirror and I consider my life and all of my failures and all of my shortcomings. I see no progress. I have to say, Lord, I'm not seeing it right now. But I believe the promise that even now you're working in me, changing me, conforming me, sanctifying me. And then I believe the promise that on the last day, your fight with sin, my fight with sin will come to an end and my Savior will come for me. So Christian, pursue holiness. Be holy as God is holy, but do it knowing that the precious blood of Christ was shed for you. You can say to your sins, I don't have to commit you any longer. His blood was shed for me. Father, would you take your word and your gospel and drive it home to our hearts? Oh, Lord, it's not some new doctrine that we need. We just need to live in the reality, the fundamentals of our faith. Help me, Lord. Help me when I'm in the throes of temptation. When I'm on the edge of despair to remember that you've shed your precious blood for me. That the Son of God has died to redeem me from my aimless conduct. Sanctify your people. May we pursue holiness so that we will one day see you. In Jesus' name.